Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Sibonim and Nathanae, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Sibonim and land of Lefty, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Amen. Thank you for your reading, and <clears throat> thank you very much for your warm welcome. It's really good to be with you here today. Um, my name is Steve Smith. I'm a colleague of Deborah Agnes, who some of you will know, Deborah and Justin. And just say thank you for your support of the Agnes family. That you support them and enables the 150-odd missionaries that are sent from churches in the UK to be better supported. So it's an crucial ministry that Deborah does. And please do keep on praying for her. Let's, let's pray. Our Lord God, thank you that you are a speaking God. And you do not keep us in the dark about the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ. Please open our eyes afresh to what you have revealed in your Son for all nations. And teach us and give us courage to respond with faith. And we ask this in your name. Amen. There's some moments, as a Christian, that you literally pinch yourself. And when I was serving in Uganda, I had one of those moments when we first arrived. We had a few books with us as we served in Kampala, doing theological training and church ministry training. Um, But when the first bookcase came, Dowder, who was wearing one of those Muslim prayer caps, saw the books that were going on the shelf, and he just said... uh, I see the Bible. Can I ask you some questions? I said, of course. Of course you are. Any question will do. He said, why do you believe in three gods? Great question. Because if you're from that standpoint, you'll be saying, hang on, we believe in one God, not Father, Son, and Spirit. And it's just a privilege to open up John chapter 10 and see where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. The Christians believe in one God, 
in three persons. I said, we all find it really hard to understand that, but that's what Jesus taught. One God. Oh, good, he said. And away he went. He comes back with the second bookcase. We did have a lot of books. Um, and he said, I've got another question. I said, fine, let's just sit down. Let's talk about it. And he said, well, why do you believe God died on the cross? Again, if you're from that standpoint of faith, it's a great question because he's processing, isn't he? If you say Jesus is God, then you think God died on a cross. And how can that happen? Because we don't believe, believe God can die. And it was, again, we just turned up to Corinthians chapter 5 and saw how, as a man, God died in our place for our wrongs, taking on our wrongs so that we can have his rights, his, his right life as ours. And it was a very brief conversation. And he was very, well, wasn't very talkative. I didn't think much of it at the time. He went away. He came back with the third bookcase, the final bookcase. And he had brought John with him. And I thought, well, who's this guy? And after he put the bookcase up, he said, um, listen, I'd like to sit down with you and with John because John and I would both like to become Christians. And it's just one of those moments you think, I had nothing to do with that. That I'm just an ordinary guy who happened to be in the right place at the right time. Who happened to know the Bible enough, just enough, <laughs> to open up the good news about Jesus. Well, Dowda David came back the next week and he said, listen, do you mind if you come to my family? I said, of course, I don't mind. How far is it? He said, well, it's not far. And, you know, three, five, seven hours later, sweating like a pig and, you know, literally thinking, what on earth am I doing? Because I have no idea what I'm going to be hit with when I get there. Because I didn't even know him from Adam, really, apart from that he's a good carpenter. But we got to his village in sort of northern central Uganda and... Um, got to his courtyard, and I was just sat on a Coke crate and given a bottle of Coke from hospitality. But he'd gathered his whole family. Literally, his whole family was there. And he said, Steve, can you just tell them what you told me? Because they've never heard it. And I looked up at the blue sky. And I thought, how many people are in this position? I now know, doing the job I do, that it's roughly 2.88 billion people in this world without any hope in Christ. But Dowda, the moment he met Jesus, he understood <clears throat> that in Jesus, God offers resurrection bodily hope to people from all nations, regardless of where they come from, that hope is available and accessible to all who hear and trust in him, regardless of our background. I don't about you, but that's a hope that in this nation we're struggling to hold on to. I was at a barbecue last summer. One guy finds out I'm a Christian. He says, listen, I'm an atheist. When you're dead, you're dead, and God is dead. Oh, right. Nice to meet you. Um... How did you arrive at that, I said? Because the moment someone says that, there's always a backstory, isn't there? There's hurt. There's grievance. There are issues in life that need to be worked through. And there were. And we had a really extended barbecue conversation because he wanted to talk once he knew I was willing to listen. 
But we all know that hope in the face of death is a privilege because it's not something that's humanly possible. My experience of death, and I'm sure it's yours if you've lost someone dear to you, that death is brutal. Death rips a human being away from us. And real love, by definition, wants to last. But death takes those loving relationships from us, removing them one by one over the years, when finally it will come to each one of us. And at the end of the day, death strips us of everything meaningful in life. Futile. Now, if you're 16 years old, you won't be feeling that very much because the whole life is before you. But the older you get, like me, the easier it comes to realize that that is a reality we all have to deal with, that we will all die. Wherever we are on this earth, whether we're in Bangladesh, Britain, or wherever you are, amongst the Bedouins in the Jordan, we will all die. And the question is, how will people hear of resurrection hope? What this passage says, that it's only available in God's intention to bless people from all nations through faith in Jesus. I just want to show you from this passage how this reveals this and then to reflect on it with you as to what God would have us do in response to this. Because what we see in this passage is that Jesus intends to bring physical, bodily, resurrection, hope. When you look down at verse 12, it gives us the context for the whole scene. And when you read it, you think, oh, actually, why does he move away, Jesus? Because when Jesus heard that John, that's the John the Baptist, who had been, loads of people had been coming to him from all around the region being baptized in the Jordan for the forgiveness Massive ministry. Loads of people, thousands are coming. But he gets put in prison. And we're told that Jesus withdraws to Galilee. And Galilee is in the north. It's in the farthest north of Israel. At which point we're all thinking, hang on, is that just a retreat? But as you read on, you realize that this is no retreat. It's an intentional move. You see, Jesus wants to make a statement in moving To Galilee, when you go on to verse 13, it says, Leaving Nazareth where he was, he went and lived at Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. And the reason he mentions those rather hard-to-pronounce places is because they have meaning in the Old Testament. That quote from verse 14 onwards is from the prophet Isaiah, God's mouthpiece, so to speak, in the Old Testament, speaking roughly 600 years before Christ came. And Matthew is saying that Jesus fulfills this. That Jesus moved to Galilee to fulfill, to complete, to accomplish what was said through God's mouthpiece, Isaiah, writing hundreds of years before. Verse 15. The land of Zebulun and beyond the land, and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee. Jesus moves to Galilee in order to fulfill and accomplish what God had promised down through the years and centuries. Actually, what he had promised through Abraham, if you know your Bible, that God would bless the nations through Abraham's seed. And if you read Matthew from Christmas, you know that he's the son of Abraham. 
Here we have Jesus, Abraham's seed, here to bless the nations through faith in him. He's not retreating. He's telling us something. He wants us to receive what God wants to give us. But notice who's living there. We're told at the end of verse 15, it's Galilee of the Gentiles. Gentiles is, in Greek, ethnos. It refers to nations, peoples, who are distinct from the Jewish people. And it's worth knowing that before, well, and after the Assyrian conquest of Israel, Israelites have been deported and displaced from the north, outside the country, and replaced with people from Assyria. So Jesus moves to the most ethnically, spiritually, religiously diverse place he could possibly move to in Israel. Jesus intends to bless the nations. He wants people like us. He wants us. He wants to give us hope. He wants to give us resurrection hope. And his geographical move is there to tell us a very important thing. He's doing it to accomplish what God has always wanted to do. To bless people like us with hope beyond death in eternity. It's quite a statement. It's not a blip, by the way. It's not like, oh, surprise! No, no, he's fulfilling the Old Testament. And when you go through Matthew, Jesus is continually making these kinds of statements. In chapter 12, he says, the Gentiles, the ethnic people like you and me, are those who put their hope in Jesus. In chapter 21, he says, the ethnic, the, the nations, are the people to whom God will give the kingdom. In chapter 24, he says that he wants to, everyone to hear the gospel throughout the world, people from every ethnic, every tribe, every nation. Jesus intends to bless people from all nations. Do we get it? Do we get it? Because he says all nations will be gathered before him for final judgment. And before that point, he wants everyone to know that there is hope in the face of death and judgment. It's really important we get this because look where Isaiah says they live in verse 16. These are the people living in darkness. And that's not a geographical point. It's a spiritual and moral point. The darkness in Matthew is a picture. It's a symbol of being in a point of without hope and in despair in the face of death. I don't know about you, but I've been with people when they are leaving this world, when they're dying. And it is a common thing that even the most confident of people say, have I done enough? Have I been enough? It's full of regret and full of questions and fear. Because all, we all deep down know that we haven't done enough, that none of us have been good enough. We just know it. Jesus is saying, Isaiah, or Matthew is saying, Isaiah, Jesus fulfilling Isaiah, who is promising that he will bring resurrection hope in the face of the despair of death. The reason I say resurrection hope is because it says 
they have seen a great light. These aren't just sentences we read at Christmas. They're sentences that ring down the, the centuries. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, with which we are all under, a light has dawned. Now, when Isaiah speaks of light, you go to Isaiah 9, Isaiah 53, he's speaking of resurrection, life. Life beyond death. Jesus will see the light of life, we're told. Now, to say this in 21st century Britain, we immediately face a plausibility gap. See, some would say that death really is just part of a, a biological reality. Do you remember the Lion King, the circle of life? The death has meaning in that we just come into the ground and then we're just part of a meaningful cycle. I don't know about you, but my, grand, my children, when their grandfather died, they didn't want their grandfather to just be pushing up daisies and be good fertilizer for the soil. They really wanted to see him again. When I saw my dad's body laid out, it was one of those horrific moments, and no one ever wants to have that. But I knew that he trusted in Jesus Christ. And that means that he was believing that Jesus had done everything for him to be beyond this life, in eternity, resurrected bodily forever. And that's not just a, something to, 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 to dull the pain. It's not making something up. It's believing what is here. That Jesus accomplishes God's intention to bless the nations who are living under the despair of darkness, of death. <clears throat> so where does that leave us? Now, it's worth knowing that around the world with my colleagues, these are no empty words. If you go to the Middle East, you'll meet church leaders who I met two years ago who would say things like this. I'm just quoting. Suffering is no bad thing for the church. We follow in our Savior's footsteps. What we need to have is answers to the questions that people from Muslim backgrounds are now asking. We need to be ready to give a, a reason for the hope we have so that they can share in our resurrection hope. Not his words, but mine. And talk to people from that region. They will tell you that there is a suffering to go through. There's a cost to be paid so the more people come to understand that Jesus is resurrection life. That's not bravado. It's not blind faith. It's trusting what has taken place in history to be true. So what does that mean? mean for us? Where does that leave us? Well, <clears throat> we're told in verse 17, from that time on, Jesus began to preach. And that word preach means publish, proclaim, announce publicly, make a noise about it, let everyone know. People have got to hear this. Don't be quiet. There's nothing silent about Jesus' ministry, nor the ministry he gives to his disciples. It's about publishing a message. It's being openly hopeful, not muted by our society, 
that wants to tell us that nobody wants to hear. I mean, come on. I was, there's a guy called Jeff who... Um, both our sons play cricket. He's in his 50s. We're at cricket practice. I'm there with Ben on my right, left, and, and um, Joel on, on my right. On my right, Jeff, sorry. Ben and Jeff. Jeff says, whenever I go to church, <clears throat> I just sort of, I feel really condemned. It feels pretty irrelevant, he said. I said, that's funny, because when I go to church, we, we try to explain the words of the Bible. I thought, well, let me just have a go at it. Grace. God's undeserved love, I said. Really, said Jeff. Honestly, I'm not joking. You know, middle class guy. Really? Eyes wide open. Never heard it. Didn't, didn't, undeserved love. No idea, he said. Grace, what about sin? Ben, on my left, looks at me, and I know what he's thinking. He's thinking, Steve, do you never stop doing your job? Shut up. Our friendship's at stake. Be quiet! Why are you bothering to tell him? Jeff wants to hear. Ben, very politely but inwardly, is angry. He doesn't want to hear this, and he wants me to be quiet. Now, I'm pretty sure that's a universal experience wherever you go in the UK. But we can't be quiet, can we? Because there's people like Jeff who want to hear. They've never heard about what grace means. They don't understand this God's undeserved love. He's got no idea he can have resurrection hope in the face of death. So why are we ever silenced by people who say, shut up, don't be silly, doesn't make sense. And I don't want to be your friend anymore. I mean, that's the stuff of the playground, isn't it? Why do we act like children about such a wonderful message? We need to step up. Nations need to hear. This is brilliant news. It's really good news. Sometimes we've just got to remember what good news this really is. Because Jesus came to give resurrection hope to all nations and all of us are living in the shadow of death. Correct? Do we believe it? Because if you believe it, you'll do two things. You'll repent, turn around, and you'll fish. That's what Jesus says we need to do with this. Repent's one of those Bible words which means not just a change of feeling, it's a change of mind, it's a change of direction, it's a decision that we continually make throughout our lives. It changes the course of our lives. And why should we do that? Why turn around and say, okay, Jesus really is for real, that he's a king, and I've got to follow him and obey him? Because it says in verse 17, the kingdom of heaven has come near. In other words, the king is here. God's powerful rule has come near to you in Jesus. He wants to give you resurrection life. Turn around. You know, when I was on the M20, M40, I, I was stopped on a service station, and I actually had a nice coffee, a bit of food, came off, didn't realize where I was going, and I went south instead of north. Stupid, buffoon, idiot. I thought to myself. But I've got a decision to make, haven't I? Am I going to turn around and go in the right direction? Or am I going to keep on going in the wrong direction because out of pure belligerent plight, I'm just going to carry on? Or of course I'm going to turn around because I know where the right direction is. If you come to understand that Jesus really is for real, 
Maybe you've just got to turn around now. Maybe today's a good day to do it. Maybe you turned 40 years ago and you've just forgotten about Jesus. And you need to come back. Turn around. Resurrection hope in the face of death. And if you're not sure it's for real, take a look. An adult look. Not a Sunday school look. So that's the first thing. Turn around. Secondly, fish. Fish for people. Because in verse 18 onwards to 22, well, verse 19 and 21, you've got two sets of brothers. The first are casting their nets into the sea. The second are mending the nets after a catch. And the call Jesus makes is spoken once, but is the same in both cases. It's there in verse 19. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Or in other words, to use an older version, I will make you fishers of people. Now that's not a coercive thing, like we're trying to hook people's mouths, and neither is it, I think, a convenient thing. I don't think if they're bus drivers saying, follow me and I'll make you bus drivers of people. I don't, it, mean, it, it means something, doesn't it? To fish for people is to, is to come alongside and say, listen, Jesus Christ is for real. Come follow him. Let's learn together, alongside each other. It's to bring as many people as possible with us into this kingdom of resurrection life. But Jesus calls us as followers to make fishers of people. And it's just worth noting that it doesn't cost as much to do that in this country. You know, my colleague in Niger will have a, uh, he's, he's had a Muslim youth group write to him and say, we'd like to know your Isa. And he's, he now has to work out how to work with the whole Muslim community to share the message of Jesus with them. And there'll be a cost there because you may remember that there are lots of churches burned and people systematically, aggressively assaulted. Uh, in that country. The same in, in Mali. If you go there, my colleague Joshua and Gunter, after the Tuareg ups, uprisings of uh, 2012, um, a lot of the, the extremist Islamic elements came down to try and take Bamako, but they were pushed back by the French. But now all those villages are full of people who are writing to him saying, when can we receive a missionary? And we're in this country thinking no one wants to hear anymore. Surprise, surprise, lots of people really want to hear this. And I said, do you need, do you need the local language? He said, no. He said, French would be useful. I said, do you need theological training? He said, that would be great, but if you just know your Bible, that would be brilliant. Who here knows your Bible? Who here knows French or actually is willing to be translated? You, you, you could be in Mali sharing the gospel in a village where people are asking Asking for missionaries. They want to hear. So what's stopping you? Your children will forgive you for not looking after your grandkids if they believe this. The cost of family is great. But the need of the millions and the billions is huge. And for us in this country... We don't have the same threat as the teams do in Bangladesh or the church in Bangladesh, which is under 1% of the country is Christian. Um, two years ago, I was, oh, I was there just in November. I was listening to the team talk about how two years ago 
some of the Bangladeshi nationals were killed ISIS-style for making disciples. That was the reason given. You are making followers of Jesus. Now, that's not going to happen to us here, is it? So what are we scared of? What do we pray? Do you pray that people will have resurrection hope in the face of death? Or have you just lost heart and thought, actually, maybe that's not going to happen anymore? I've been trying for 15 years. I want to encourage you to pray for the nations this morning. There's this prayer guide that has communities where Christ is least known. Why don't you take one and use it to pray for where people will live and die without hearing of Christ? But just as I finish... I just want to ask the question, who told you? Who told you this message? Think of them. Some of us, some of us it would have been in youth camp, some of us at school, some of us at work. A, a colleague lived a, an adequately Christian life, enough for you to think there's something different about them, and, and you might, they invited you to, to hear more. Maybe you can't remember a day when you weren't a Christian because your family and your parents led you to Christ. Or picture a place where there is no Christian family, where there is no church, no youth group, no Christian union, no Christians in the workplace. How are they going to have resurrection hope in the face of death? Who's going to tell them? And as the church we are and the gifts we've got, how will we make every opportunity to use what we have so the more people hear of Christ? That's why Jesus came. He came to bless people from all nations. That's why his disciples are here. That's why the church is here, isn't it? To make him known. The more people here. The sun rose this morning where I come from in Woodbridge, as it did in Cambridge. The sun rose in Jordan amongst the Bedouin. The sun rose amongst the Uyghur in China. I could go on around the world. But just as the sun will set today, So one day the sun will set on resurrection hope. And it'll be too late. The time is now. Let's pray. Father, in the quiet, we... We come before you. We thank you that Jesus proclaims resurrection, bodily hope in the face of death. Thank you that he accomplishes it through his life and teachings and through his death and resurrection. Thank you that he is king. We're sorry for where we have lived as if that isn't true. We ask your forgiveness. We thank you that Jesus' death is sufficient for that. Please fill us with your spirit to live with resurrection hope where we are and to be willing and bold enough, courageous enough, trusting enough to say, here we are, use us, and use us so more people hear. We ask this in your name. Amen.